The Secret Church podcast is a resource from Radical.net. In Secret Church 8, David Platt explores Scripture's teaching on possessions in relation to God's people in the Old Testament, in relation to the teachings of Jesus, and in relation to God's people in the New Testament. We will then apply what we learn to the practical issues of submitting, committing, working, living, giving, tithing, helping, saving, borrowing, and investing. This study closes by addressing the errors of the prosperity gospel and then urging Christians to use their prosperity for the glory of Christ and His persecuted church. This is Secret Church 8, Episode 1. The goal tonight is not to go off on preachers who are advocating a so-called prosperity gospel around the world or to degrade professing Christians who are buying into a so-called prosperity gospel around the world. The, the goal tonight is, is to confront the idolatry of possessions and the pursuit of prosperity that is deep within every single one of our hearts. We could talk all night about the, this prosperity theology as if it were outside of us, but it is not. It is inside of us and it is inside of me we all we all have blind spots you know points in our life where our vision is obscured we can't see them we rely on others to point them out but even when people point them out we still don't want to see them i think about blind spots in American Christian history, like slavery. What a glaring blind spot. How could professing Christians preaching the Bible and worshiping week in and week out have men and women outside their homes like they were property to be used. This is frightening when you think about it. Study the Bible, regular worship, church attendance, these things do not prevent blindness in us. There is something in us that chooses to ignore certain things. And so... Before we dive in tonight, I, and it's in your notes, I, I want to share with you very honestly about a blind spot in my life that God has been revealing over the last uh, year or two. And it all started with uncovering the facts about the world around us. The reality of lostness. 6.8 billion people in the world. Don't put, not in the blank. We'll get to the blank in just a second. They're like eager, like, all right, first blank, here we go. I'm with him. No, no you're not, actually. So just hold on a sec. I love it. I love it. It's good. How many of you are here for the first time at Secret Church? Why don't we welcome the rookies tonight, huh? How many of you, how many of you have been here before? All right, that's good. All right, well, 
Hopefully you're sitting next to an experienced professional. And if you were, they were like on that blank. <laughs> Not getting behind. Ahead of the game. So... I'll tell you when on this one. So there's over over 6.8 billion people in the world. And the most liberal estimate puts the world at about one-third Christian. And that's people who in many contexts claim to be Christian with more of a social or political identification as Christians. So even if we assumed all of those people were actually followers of Christ, that still leaves. Now, here here we go. Over 4.5 billion people in the world today at this moment on a road that leads to eternal hell. Over 4.5 billion people, 2 Thessalonians 1, verse 7 and 8, a little farther down, says over 4.5 billion people, if nothing changes, will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. They will be, Revelation 20, 15, thrown into the lake of fire. Four and a half billion. People groups in the world, 16,351. 16,351 represent that 6.8 billion people. People groups in the world that still haven't even heard the gospel that saves them from that hell. 6,645 people groups, ethno-linguistic groups that still haven't heard. They're unreached with the gospel. And Jesus said, make disciples among all the people groups. Every people group is going to be represented around the throne. Revelation 7. So that's the reality of lostness, the reality of poverty. Today, over a billion people live and die in desperate poverty. They live on less than a dollar a day. That's 700 million, just to give you a little glimpse, 700 million in slums, 500 million on the verge of starvation, 93 million beggars, 200 million children exploited for labor. We say poverty, desperate poverty. What is that? What is, what is poverty? What does that represent? Lack of food and water. Over a billion people on the planet today who do not have access to safe drinking water. Illiteracy. Huge illiteracy rates in places like India and Africa. Inadequate medical care. Disease. You've got disease like AIDS. There's 6,000 people who die every day in Africa of AIDS alone. And then you've got easily curable disease and sickness. There there are millions of people this year who will die of diarrhea. They will die from it. Brain damage. It's one of the most devastating pictures of poverty in the world. Permanent brain damage. Most of your brain development, 80% of it happens in the first two years of your life. And if that is not provided for, enough protein and nutrients, then your brain is is deformed the rest of your life. Over a billion people in desperate poverty, close to two billion others living on less than $2 a day. That's, That's 
close to half the world living on what you and I would pay for French fries for lunch. Gets worse. According to UNICEF, 26,000 children will die today due to either starvation or preventable disease. A disease like diarrhea or pneumonia or malaria. 26,000. I mean, think about that. 26,000 Joshua's and Caleb's are are two sons. If this were true in this community right around this building right now, if that were true, then every child 18 years or younger in our county would be dead within a few days. And here, here was the blind spot that God began uncovering in my life. I, we, are not inconvenienced by this extreme poverty because those stricken by it are not only poor, they are powerless. Literally millions of them dying quietly in relative obscurity. And here's the danger. We can comfortably ignore them in our affluence and pretend like they don't even exist. And, and this was the scary thing for me. I can lead in the church in my life and my family and I can be successful in the church in our church culture and all the while turn a deaf ear to the unreached and starving. I can, I can lead in the church and be successful in the church, but here was the question. Can I believe the gospel and turn a deaf ear to those who are unreached and starving? And the answer to that question is absolutely not. It is impossible to truly believe in the gospel of Christ and turn a deaf ear to those who've never heard of him or those who are starving outside our doorstep. That's what James 2 is all about. Gospel faith works. Particularly when you consider the reality of wealth according to the World Bank. Follow this. Incoming. Low income. People in the world, percentage of people in the world that make $825 or less, 37%. A year. $825 a year or less, 37%. Next, lower middle income, up to 3,000 plus, 38%. So that's about 5 billion people right there living on less than $3,000 a year. Now you're in the upper middle class of the world, up to about $10,000, that's 9%. And then the highest incomes in the world, $10,000 or more, 16%. It's interesting, if you could just kind of get in your mind, maybe your salary, if you keep taking the salary higher, you make $25,000 a year, you're in the top 10% of the world's wealthiest people. You make $50,000 a year, you're in the top 1% of the world's wealthiest people, $50,000 a year. Average annual American Christian household income, 42409 42409 That is in the top 2.5% of the richest people in the world. Now, I know, I know that there's a lot of college students who come to Secret Church, and you don't, like, feel rich. Ramen noodles don't give you that particular feeling. And I feel your pain. 
And I know that we are in difficult economic times, and there are people in this room who probably have lost jobs and have been through difficult times economically. And you don't, you don't feel rich. But the reality is, if you have clean water and food and shelter and adequate medical care and a means of transportation, even if it's public, then you are incredibly wealthy. And this is important because tonight when we see the Scripture talking about the rich, the, one of the greatest temptations will be in our minds, a trigger to go off, and we'll think of them as the rich. We'll think of that, that guy who lives in a bigger house than we do, or has all this stuff. With them. And what I want us to see from the very beginning is that we are them, all of us. We, we are them. We in our culture are a rich aristocracy surrounded by, surrounded by billions of poor neighbors. That's, that's the reality of the world. So that's incoming. Look at outgoing. North American Christians give an average of 2.5% of their income to the church. I think that's probably generous. But that, that's, that's the stat. There's a place at the end where I show where all these stats come from. But even if that's true, follow with me, North American churches give an average of 2% of those funds to missions overseas. 2.5% of the income to the church, 2% of those funds to missions overseas. And when you do the math, and I checked this like 10 times because I wanted to make sure I couldn't believe that this was what this meant. For every $100 a North American Christian makes, we give five cents to missions overseas. Five cents out of $100. What are we spending our money on? Today, Christians spend more money on dog food than missions, Leonard Ravenhill said. You know, I, uh, I sent this out on, on Twitter a couple of weeks ago, and I saw this wife respond, and she was saying to her husband, should we get rid of, like, I can't remember the dog's name, like Fluffy. Like, and I was like, oh, man, like... <laughs> And then, so I was like, huh, well, that ought to be an interesting discussion in that household, Lord blessing. Uh, and, and a few hours later, the husband replies and says, Fluffy is gone. <laughs> That's horrible, isn't it? Fluffy hates Twitter. <laughs> yeah, and, I, and so I, I, my, my goal is not to like, uh, I know that all of you have dogs or cats like are hating me at this moment, but yeah, I'm not saying, spend $40 billion every year on pets and $60 billion every year on weight loss programs and $10 billion every year on church buildings. And this, this quote here from Blomberg, is, it's a little outdated because it's from the early 90s, but I couldn't find one like it. It's so poignant. And, I mean, you know that this is only worse 
In the early 1990s, Americans spent annually twice as much on cut flowers as on overseas Protestant ministries, twice as much on women's sheer hosiery, one and a half times as much on video games, one and a half times as much on pinball machines, slightly more on the lawn industry, about five times as much on pets, one and a half times as much on skin care, almost one and a half times as much on chewing gum, almost three times as much on swimming pools and accessories, approximately seven times as much on sweets. 17 times as much on diets and diet-related products, 20 times as much on sports activities, approximately 26 times as much on soft drinks, and a staggering 140 times as much on legalized gambling activities. Is this not astounding? Like, what are we doing? This is not a problem with American church and American Christians. This is a problem with our hearts. With our hearts. And I, I wonder, I wonder if a hundred years from now, if something doesn't change, I wonder if a hundred years from now, Christians will look back on you and I in our culture and ask the question, how could they live in such affluence while so many had no food or water? How could they go after bigger houses and nicer cars when their brothers and sisters were starving? The Bible is not silent on this, and that's where I want to point us tonight. You see where those statistics are from, but the reality is that's I want to leave statistics behind. I wanted to set the stage with the realities in the world. Some people say that you shouldn't use statistics because they make people feel guilty. Well, what if, like, we're guilty... So, if you have been offended, I hope so. But statistics don't change us. Scripture changes us. And so I want us to see the reality of the world and and see Scripture in light of the reality of the world. But it's Scripture that's going to change us. And so the word before us, what we're going to do is dive in to just about every passage there is. In the Bible. And I mean, this is thick. It is thicker than anyone I've ever done. I don't know why. Like, it's not like I finished early last time. So we're going to fly through every, as best as I can. If we don't hit all of them, we're going to hit close to all of them. Every passage that addresses possessions in Scripture. We're going to see those. And I want to be, I want to get clear from the very, like, I'm a pastor, not an economist. Like, I'm not here to offer financial counsel for you when it comes to whole or life or, part or term life insurance or what to do about this or that area of your finance. Like, that's the other Dave, okay? Like, <laughs> you got me? Like, I'm, he is not me. So, and, and we know that our, our, our culture, even our Christian culture today, is filled with all kinds of books on financial stuff. It's everywhere. And it's not that those books are bad. But here's the deal. If we're not careful, we'll go running to those books for answers and we'll go running right past this book. Now, this book won't talk about whole or term life insurance or what kind of investment portfolio you should be involved in. It won't talk about those things because this book will talk about things far deeper than that that affect those things. 
And I wonder if in our culture we're running to those other books because we want to avoid the realities that are expressed in this book. And so I want us to dive into this book and see. I, I want to... I want to stay as close as I can to this book. Tozer said, listen to no man who has not listened to God. And my prayer is that tonight the Holy Spirit would communicate through this word. I am in no way claiming that everything I say is from God, that is divine and inspiration. That's one of the things we'll see. And some prosperity preachers just claim this special inspiration for interpretation of Scripture. It's totally bogus. Yes, I showed my cards on that one, but... <laughs> Uh, but I, my, my challenge for you tonight is to take everything that I talk about, any conclusions that I come to, and match them up against the Word of God. And if they match up with the Word of God, then that is authoritative for your life. If they do not, then, then throw it out. I mean, just know that. God's Word on money is true. It's true. It's all breathed out by God. It's true. And that's why one of the reasons we're not going to focus on all those other periphery questions, because the reality is most Christians in history and most Christians in the world today aren't worried about investment portfolios or a lot of the questions we have when it comes to finances. They live in cultures where that's not quite the same reality that it is here. This word, though, speaks across cultures and gives truth upon which to make those kinds of decisions across cultures. It's true. God's word of money is thorough, over 2,300 verses. Now, that might surprise us. There's, there's sometimes I think, I think we think, well, the Bible is a book about spiritual things and Fortune Magazine is a book about financial things. And so I'm going to go to Fortune Magazine or the like for financial advice and I'll go to here for spiritual advice. But the reality is the Bible talks more on money than on faith and prayer, more than on heaven and hell combined. Why did, why did God choose to say more about how we're to view money and possessions than Heaven and hell. What, is, what does God know about money and possessions that we don't? True, it's thorough. God's word of money is clear. Randy Alcorn, my interactions with people as a pastor, teacher, counselor, and researcher, as well as my observation of my own tendencies, have convinced me that in the Christian community today, there is more blindness, rationalization, unclear thinking about money than anything else. And it's not because the Bible's not clear. Yes, it's, it's sometimes difficult to wade through and apply, but it's, it's clear. It's all over 2,300 verses. There's not one of us in this room who's going to be able to stand before God one day and him ask us to give an account for the way we spend our money and resources. And I say to him, well, I wish you'd given me more information on that. He has spoken. Maybe the problem is not that the Bible's unclear on money. Maybe the problem is that the Bible is too clear on money. It's clear at the same time, it's complex. Clear doesn't necessarily mean easy. And we're going to work through different things that we've got to hold in tension, that the Bible is not contradicting itself on, but we've got to see them both side by side. Like I put an example here, Luke 12, 33, Jesus says, sell your possessions, give to the needy. Hebrews 13, 2, don't neglect to show hospitality to strangers, which is basically invite strangers into your home. Well, if you sold your home, you got no home to invite them to stay in. So do we have a home or not? That's a, that's a valid question. And so it's complex. It's not that those are contradicting. We've just got to put all these things next to each other and then see what is Scripture saying. God's word on money is redundant at times. We're going to see some truths repeated over and over and over again. And I thought about just kind of skipping over those ones that we've already seen as we're walking through Scripture. But, but 
if they're repeated in Scripture, they're probably repeated for a reason. And so we're going we're to see those repeated. Redundant at times, shocking at other times. There are some things included in this book that would cause financial planners, even wonderful Christian financial planners, to, to say, I'm not sure about that. I mean, Jesus commends a widow who gives everything she has, her last penny. And he says, that is wise. And then he talks about a rich man who's storing up savings, and he says, that is very unwise. This is, this is challenging. God's word is going to confront us. The reality is, if the Bible were written today and included what it says about money and possessions, there's no way you could get this thing published. This book would be a hard sell. Nobody would buy it. It confronts, it pierces. It commits the unpardonable sin in our day. It makes us feel guilty. But what if we don't need to be comforted in our sin? What if we need to be confronted in it? God's word will confront us and it will at the same time comfort us. Psalm 19 says, The law of the Lord is perfect. It revives the soul. It makes wise the simple. It rejoices the heart, enlightens the eyes, and endures forever. It's good. There's great reward in the word of God. So it will comfort us. God's word will comfort us. God's word will free us. Sometimes we think when it comes to money, we think, I would just rather not deal with these issues in my life. The reality is if that were so, you, you should not have come to Secret Church tonight. Because we're going to deal with these things. And we think, well, I'm just content with the way I'm living now. I don't want to make radical changes. I would ask you, are you really content? Is it, is it really possible for a follower of Christ to be content without hearing the word of the Father to you and responding to it in obedience to him? And I would say we, we won't be content until we... We see what the Word says and live it out. This Word will free us like Psalm 119 talks about. It. God's Word will guide us. This journey will not necessarily be, be easy. I like what Philip Yancey said. He said, I feel pulled in opposite directions over the money issue. Sometimes I want to sell all that I own, join a Christian commune, and live out my days in intentional poverty. At other times, I want to rid myself of guilt and enjoy the fruits of our nation's prosperity. Mostly, I wish I did not have to think about money at all. But I must somehow come to term with the, terms with the Bible's very strong statements about money. The journey will not be easy, but it will no, most definitely be worth it. So here's the question for us tonight at Secret Church. Are we willing to hear the word even if it convicts us? Are we willing to hear it? Part of the point tonight, we want to acquire biblical information. We want to hear what God has to say. But that's not the only point. Second question, are we willing to obey the word even if it costs us? We're willing to obey the word even if it costs us. We're willing to obey the word even if it goes against everything our culture says. We're willing to obey the word even if it goes against everything our affluent religious neighbors say. This is an important question. The goal tonight is not to look at the word and then decide whether or not we want to obey it. Not an option for a follower of Christ. Father of Christ goes into tonight and says, I want to hear what the word of God says, and I, I will obey it. By his grace and the power that he provides, I will obey it. We're willing to obey it even if it costs us. We want to experience spiritual transformation. This is where I want to give the reminder that I give it every secret church. Tonight is not just about a Bible study in this room. It's about you and I, yes, receiving God's word, but we're being transformed by God's word.
and walking out of this place in a few hours, understanding what God's word says about money and possessions, processing that, being transformed by it with a commitment to obey it and to to go into the nations with the good news of a God who is far superior to all the stuff this world has to offer. Lives that will show that and lips that will proclaim that. I picked this topic because it's, it's huge. It's huge for us in a world of pro- pr- prosperity surrounded by a world of poverty. We need to see these things. I picked this, this topic because it, this is this prosperity theology is a theology that is being exported from American Christians and American churches all over the world and is deceiving people all over the world and damaging the spread of the gospel to the ends of the earth because in the end, it is no gospel at all. Taking the pure gospel and replacing it with an idolatry of possessions and pursuit of world, worldly prosperity, that is damning souls here in materialistic America and it's exported to damn souls other places. And so we need to address this. Sound good? Okay. Here's the plan. The gospel, we're going to look at the gospel because everything we got to, we're going to see, we've got to see in light of the gospel. Then we're going to look at the gospel and possessions. We're going to walk through Old Testament Jesus, New Testament people of God. And then after we go through all these passages, we're going to come to the conclusions, 18 different conclusions that we're going to, we're going to get to that, that I hope at least in some way sum up what the Bible teaches about the gospel and possessions. And then applications, these 10 different applications that we're going to talk about. And then close out our night uh, a little after midnight with the gospel and prosperity. Are we ready? Thank you for listening. You can find more episodes from Secret Church and thousands of other free resources at Radical.net.